Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Claudia Monticelli, the host of this podcast, Let's Talk Soul. Over the years, after having interviewed so many people on so many different topics, I realized that what interested my audience wasn't really the individual topics per se, but was how it impacted them, how it touched their soul. So I'll invite you all to lay back, put your feet up, and if you like what you hear, leave a review, five-star review. I'd appreciate that. So just enjoy your listening. Today I have a guest. Um, His name is Brent Janotta. Brent, say hello to our audience. Hello, audience. Hello, audience. He's he's usually more talkative, I think. So let me, I'm going to introduce him first. All right, he's a writer. He's a former CIA counterterrorism analyst and current crisis counselor. Um, he's a native of Los Angeles, a an alum of the University of Southern California and a former college athlete. Now, as you, you get the tendency, there's X- ex-former, so I'm thinking to myself, well, what does he do now? (laughs) Who used to be fluent, used to be, so there's another used to be, fluent in Arabic. Um, And he put his freelance writing business aside to write a book on political philosophy in his mother's house and in coffee shops and Pasadena, around Pasadena in California. Now, so my first question goes out to you, Brent, and I'm thinking, well, Arabic, was it, you know, you just don't pick up and learn Arabic. Was there a history? Did you go there? What made you learn Arabic? Yeah, good question. Well, I'm 41 years old, and that means that 9-11 happened when I was in college. I was in okay. early junior years, so I had already established my major but I still had time to sort of switch things up if I wanted to. And so Uh when I saw the towers come down and they put Osama bin Laden's face on the screen that we probably all remember, my initial reaction was that I was mortified and embarrassed that I didn't know that this force was in the world. I felt Mm -hmm. like very uneducated and uninformed and I wanted to change that. It also felt as if whatever force had attacked the United States was probably going to be a really, really important thing for a while. And Mm -hmm. I started reading the newspaper, going to the library, pulling out books on the Middle East. And Uh I got really just fascinated with the entire culture, the history. So when was that? How, what age were you then? I was about 21. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I started taking, I figured if I'm going to work regarding this area of the world, I should probably learn the language. Arabic is kind of hard. And I wouldn't (laughs) say... I wouldn't say that I'm, yeah, that I'm particularly talented in learning languages. I had taken mm-hmm. Spanish before that, being from Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's and, uh, no comparison. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty different. And so <laughs> I think as humans, we tend to gravitate towards behaviors and activities that we're good at, that we can feel mm-hmm. sort of gratification with a yeah. job well done. I'm not particularly good at languages, but regardless, I still got really, really into learning Arabic. Arabic. I took it for about eight years. Okay. Now, my, you don't just 
pick up Arabic. I mean, you have to go there. You have to meet people. You have to fall in love with somebody to make it real. And did all of that happen to you? Did you have an interaction with the locals? Were you able to go to different areas in that um, in the Middle East? The minute I graduated from USC in Los Angeles, I got on a plane to Beirut, Lebanon, where they uh, had a summer-long program. It's no yes, English. You an sign excellent a thing. university there, actually. I know oh, really? the university system. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this that's is one at of the, the best. What the American? They have an American university there. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. exactly where I was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, mm-hmm. no English to the extent that you can help it. Mm-hmm. Four or five mm-hmm. hours of class a day, and then you're off doing homework and. So I spent a summer in Beirut, and then after that, I went to Cairo in Egypt for one yeah. year to get a master's in Middle East studies. Mm, so I took different Arabic. Yeah, it is. I'm glad you know Egypt. that. It's well, own, uh... <laughs> it's completely different. It's own brand. That's confusion yeah. right there. Yeah. yeah. Luckily, yeah. they teach us this sort of umbrella version of Arabic, which no one yeah. really speaks except on satellite news networks. But it's like a good sort of Latin uh, to pick up the other dialects. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I was doing. It's it's funny. Uh, you know, I, I lived in the university environment for so long. I, mean, I was a tenured professor for so many years, and of course, oh. I was in. You know, I was I taught simultaneous interpreting. Okay, mm. um, those who everyone thinks we are spies, and um, I had a colleague um, from Lebanon and a very dear colleague. And, uh, you know, so I know all about that world, uh, not having gone, I have to say, not, I haven't gone. And um, I did start to study Arabic as well. But it is, like I said, you have to have a motivation, you have to have some form of, you know, pull that will get you through. And at the time, I was in love with Russian. So no, I just left the Arabic. So now we have the X part of the Arabic. So you used to know Arabic well. You don't. You didn't continue. Well, I took it for you know eight years or so, and I worked with the Middle East first at a human rights organization in Washington D.C. for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then eventually the government took me in to become an analyst. And okay. so now we're talking the year 2012 was when I pop okay. out of analyst training, and now I'm. It's time for me to start working as a counterterrorism analyst. Meanwhile, okay, but the air- wait, you're a yeah. former. Today, you're a former analyst, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, my question, it begs the question, why? What happened there? I mean, it, was it your call? Was it their call? Were you fed up with it? Did you see things politically that you couldn't stand? I know mm-hmm. these are typical, you know, delicate questions, but hell, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's still We're important to ask. Yeah, this is yeah. great for me. This is like therapy for me. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll I write you wor- a check. I mean, I'll write great, you an yeah. invoice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the checks in the mail. Yeah, so at Human Rights Watch, I thought they did great, great work. I definitely mm-hmm. learned a ton about sort of how the prison system works in yeah. you know Dubai and a lot of like really terrible things that happened to political dissidents in that mm-hmm. region of the world that hopefully don't happen at all yeah. here or in Europe. And so the work was great and I learned so much, but there, there was one method of how to do things that I thought sort of was less effective than it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like many bu- other bureaucracies, things are hard to change, especially like core values and core functions. 
And I mean, so you're not was, you're you're being very abstract. I mean, I understand that if you tell me mm. too much, you're going to have to kill me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hopefully not killing anybody today. <laughs> so let's see. I I can't get anything more out of you. I know what it's like to try not to bite the hand that feeds you. I know. Mm. I've worked in. I used to work for the State Department as an interpreter, and, and that was tough. Okay. Very yeah. tough. You I'm know. Sure. And not, sure. not wanting to say somebody's words, but hey, they're paying you, you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So did you get fed up with it and left? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I wanted to move on, just like a lot mm -hmm. of other people do. I'd fallen out of love with the way that the organization functioned. And yeah. to be frank, to answer your question more directly, which I promise yeah. to keep doing from now on, I, <laughs> my boss and I didn't get along almost okay. from the first day. So that oh, was also yeah. a huge impetus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, we were chit-chatting before we pressed record and you did explain that you're a private consultant, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that yeah. is the brunt of your work, a crisis counselor. Can you give us some examples of what you do? Um, yeah. Give me a Mr. X that, um, that comes, comes to you and uh, and says, look, I'm having this trouble. I just can't do this, this, and this. Could you help me with, can, can you do mm -hmm. that without compromising anything? I can definitely try. Okay. So crisis counseling and writing consultancy are right now in my life are two separate vectors. Mm -hmm. So for crisis counseling, I got trained by Dee Dee Hirsch, which is this gigantic national organization uh -huh. in Santa Monica, California. And they control the entire national grid of suicide and crisis helplines. If you're having the worst yeah. day of your life, you're thinking about ending your own life, mm -hmm. you want to call the 988 number. And if you're mm -hmm. close to Los Angeles, you could get me. Uh, but there's a lot of other people that you can well, get But can I too. ask, how long is that training? It was six weeks, I believe. Oh, my God. I was thinking maybe eight months. <laughs> six yeah. weeks very no. yeah, intense i, I think yeah. it <laughs> I was hope. yeah it was uh three hours four hours of class a week and then a whole lot of homework and paperwork uh -huh. it's a lot of role playing you've got to get used okay. to when okay. someone yeah, is yeah. sort of in the worst moment sure, of their sure, life sure. and how do you sure. handle that sure. so yeah. so let's say uh, someone comes to you and uh, you said the crisis writing did you say that no can um the writing part is one thing and the consultancy is another thing. Did I get the that The writing right? and consultancy is the same. The crisis counseling is oh, separate okay. from the writing. So give us yeah. an example of the writing first and then we'll talk about the crisis. Okay. My, I have a client who is the president of a university system. Okay. And she is phenomenal. She's extremely impressive in so many ways. And... Mm -hmm. She has what? a... Give us an idea of one way she's phenomenal. She, so we know where you're coming from. Yeah, good question. She runs a blog um, yeah. about her university system. And okay. unlike... When you say... Sorry, I, I keep interrupting. Yeah. When oh, you please. say university system, mm -hmm. it's not a university. Mm -hmm. What's the system? What does that add to it? Is it? Does it have more than one uh, city location or what? It's a bevy of community colleges that are oh, strewn out throughout okay. Central California. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So she runs more than one. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. So she she's, runs a blog. She writes a blog. She's very eloquent, talented, and great at connecting with people. I went to a uh -huh. conference that she hosted 
and she's very diminutive and she speaks softly, but everyone is on the edge of their seat as if she When has a magical power over mm -hmm. her audience, which I think is just so cool. It's, Fantastic. it's hard to explain, but she does have a power like that. Well, and then, so, um, so she became a client of yours. Uh -huh. And That's right. what did she need from you? She wanted us to collaborate writing op-eds and publishing them in newspapers and journals about her political ideas, what oh, she's trying to do vis-a-vis yes. -vis improving her colleges. So hopefully mm -hmm. that not only colleges throughout the rest of the country might pick up these great tips, but that the United States government might start adopting some of these practices into how they run their public systems. Okay, so now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of the thing. So an op-ed <laughs> is definitely political. I mean, you can't get out. You write an op-ed and you've got a stance, you've got a perspective, yeah. right? Exactly. So uh, let's, is it safe to say that her perspective and your perspective aligned? I mean... Politically, yes, I would okay. say so. Yeah. Has it ever been the case that a client's political stance just didn't jive with you? It has. And did you take I... them on as a client? Well, as a as my personal consultancy right now, the answer is no. But I have mm -hmm. worked at public relations firms in the past where that was unfortunately the case. Okay. And yeah. probably you're working on your own because of your past experiences, right? Good instinct. You're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've done this before. <laughs> All right. So now um And, and you wrote these op-eds and how would it typically go? She'd say, you know, she'll give you an outline. She'd say, this is, these are the three points I want to get across. And you, you have more or less freedom in, in um, writing it, drafting it. I do. For the first draft, I have a lot of freedom, which I really uh -huh. like. And I've yeah. studied writing, taken a lot of classes and taken mm -hmm. classes that are specifically on opinion writing, which is what right. I do for Good. my clients. And so, mm -hmm. like you said, there's an argument to be made and you want that made in the fur, like way up top so that the reader knows what this is all about. If it's only mm -hmm. 600 words, it can be a very short experience for the reader, mm -hmm. but it's got to pop and like really mm -hmm. tug on psychological heartstrings that you know, grab a reader's attention and maybe even change their minds. And for, well, for the, the genre op-ed, how, let's say, is there sort of an organ, a, a, a spectrum? Does it go from 500 words to 3,000? I mean, what is usually the genre? How, to, how yeah. can it be defined? Short op-eds are about 550 words uh -huh. and a long op-ed is about 1,000. Oh, okay, it doesn't go past yeah. a thousand. That's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Once it gets past a thousand, it starts to become like an essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I get yeah. it. Um, okay, so so that is the type of writing that you do for clients, mm -hmm. and it's politically it's it's political. This is it's all politi political. Politically right? tinged. A lot of them are on well, policies. What is not to... po what is not poli pol politics? Yeah, you're right. You go you're to right. a supermarket, you buy, you know, these German chocolate candies instead of, I don't know, Oreos. You know yeah. where the person's coming from, right? Every choice is political. Okay, so yeah, right. let's say that, um, So, but you tried to, to mask that in some way in your description, which is funny for me. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And so um, let's say, well, I'm so curious now. I've got to ask you, please forgive me. Have you ever come to an, a complete 
standstill with a client in terms of what you wrote. It just was not accepted. Yes. That's okay. Happened. And and why? Why? Well, writers, my clients rather, they've got a voice. Right. And what I see my job as is bringing a value add that they can't add on their own. On their own. So uh -huh. whether it's structural or stylistic, mm -hmm. um, I want to bring something to the table or else there's no reason to hire me. Right. Like, sure. Anybody can sure. write for themselves. Sure. So that means de facto, if I'm working with you, the end product is going to be a bit different than it was if you just ventured on on your own. Right. And so I try to take what they've already written, like right. things in the past, find maybe a small handful okay. of things I think I can improve and then insert yeah. that into the draft that we're both working on. Uh-huh. And yeah. they just didn't like what you wrote? Or... It was not in their voice, as they would say. Oh, that's tough. I mean, tough. It really is tough to get somebody's voice out there. Yeah. And did you tell them when write it yourself or how, did you come to an agreement? We always, almost always come to an agreement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> almost always. Not always. Good training you got there, Brent. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> All right. Let's go to the other side of your uh, work, the uh, crisis council uh, consultancy. Um, yeah. Let's say if, if being an outsider, I would think, well, how big is something? When is a crisis defined as a crisis? What defines mm -hmm. a crisis? We usually define a crisis as somebody going through something where they may not make it through the day without either harming themselves or ending their own life. That is when that's this specific type of crisis that I am trained to deal with. A life or death crisis then? Life or death, yeah. Okay. And um, so let's let's create an imaginary uh, client here as well and walk us through what happens typically, if you, mm -hmm. if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. When you call, call the suicide hotline, right. um, I'll introduce myself. I'll say suicide crisis line, this is Brent. And then I will leave a few seconds of silence for the caller to gather themselves and tell me what their name is. And then I'll ask them what's going on today. Well, yeah. why was the reason you called? And then usually they will launch into an extremely sad story. I would say most of the calls, over 50% are of two types. They're a young teenager, about 13 or 15, oh, who has either been dumped by uh -huh. whoever they were dating and now feels helplessly alone, yeah. or they're also a younger person whose parents seem to be irretrievably diabolical. And all, and <laughs> I all love sorts that, irretrievable. Of... <laughs> Yeah, I like it's... the diabolical. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, I've been, I've been trying to use that one. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, or you said half of them are that. What are the other half? The other half just cannot deal with their with their parents. Uh, their it's parents always with to... parents. It's always younger people with a parental. Problem? Not always. I would say the most common call are these two calls. A young person, oh. younger than you would want them to be, twelve, even uh, eleven. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Do you ever work with um, CEOs from a company who has a world crisis to deal with? Something like that? Not in my crisis counseling. Uh -huh. In writing, yes. Ah, so okay. when writing op-eds, sometimes, and this has happened to me, 
my client will be somebody who's potentially in a lot of trouble, either with the uh -huh. law or with their brand online, that they've uh -huh. suffered a reputational hit that they want to have recovered. And uh -huh. I can also help with that too. Oh, well, this is interesting. This is interesting. So yeah. um, let's, now we've understood, we've understood the nature of your writing business. So when uh, I introduced you by saying you put your freelance uh, writing business aside to write a book. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. the book is on political philosophy, and um, where I worked in, in my university, I knew all of the political science uh, professors. So, and tip, and one of them, two of them, when they when they had when they their topic was political philosophy, they were very very interesting to me, and it's quite a topic, and it's quite a wide ranging topic. So, how did this um, come? You know, how did the seeds come up? What was it that, mm -hmm. you know, brought you to this? As listeners might imagine, writing for other people, it's it can be very fun, compelling and gratifying. But after five years of it, there's just yeah, just endurance starts to leak away. <laughs> Well, I'm seeing, I'm actually seeing good things. I'm seeing that my clients are able to change the conversation either around them or around the topic that they want to sort of mm -hmm. be a thought leader on. Yeah. And so now I'm seeing how the written word, and I'm sure you know this, can really change hearts and minds and can make Ooh. people better people. Wait a minute now. You, you have a funny, you're a funny guy, Brent. You're a funny guy. Oh, thank you. you know, you sort of take the answer to the question from far, far away. And I'm wondering, um, this is a strategy that you have. It's a psych, you know, it's a pattern that I'm seeing. Now, mm -hmm. when I say what brought you to write the book, I obviously, I wasn't asking you that you thought you were good enough or that you had you made your mark with your op-eds or something and then you thought well let me write for myself i i mean is that what you were getting at because my my uh question was aimed at getting a response of the type well from all of the things that i've seen in your experience on the field and you know the that you've worked for so mm -hmm. what is it that made you you get that because a book is a big thing. And so mm -hmm. for somebody to sit down and write one or to plan one, you've got something to say. Mm -hmm. Now, it stems from your perspective, Cor correct? Correct. Yeah. And so what made you want to write this book? As I watch the news and think back to my experiences. Yeah. I felt as though things that I were thinking and feeling about these big, big issues affecting all of us, uh -huh. that I wasn't seeing my thoughts reflected in the media. Mm -hmm. And so I've got this experience of give getting other example. people's. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah. So Think homelessness I'm... as yeah. an issue. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that I know a lot of people who think that people without a home should pull themselves up by their bootstraps and that the government and society should sort of back off and let them try to mm -hmm. pull themselves up. Okay. And I tend to think that the way that our laws and founding mm -hmm. documents are written, that there is potentially a mandate for us as a society and government yeah. to help them. That's Okay, one so example. this is a liberal uh, tendency, right? This is a, mm -hmm. a left-wing 
view of of how society should take care of what's on the street and and the people um but political philosophy as such you know um it does talk about the philosophies of politics and in is your book directed on a general level uh what is political philosophy what is the political philosophy of america today or where has uh, how did do you have it underway a little bit that you could talk about it yeah i definitely don't want to write a political philosophy book for people who study that like you said i want it to be for a wider audience i don't go into what political philosophy is defining terms i don't think people need that or necessarily want that i want to use what i know about political philosophy to make arguments for societal improvement. Do you have a working title? Yeah, it's called Moral Imagination. All right, now this is what we (laughs) wanted to get. All right, but now we're talking. Uh, Yeah, I was holding back on you. (laughs) You're holding back. And uh, do you have the um, table of contents? Is there three parts, five parts? How many chapters? Come on. We're looking at about nine chapters, a little over 200 pages. Good. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so so it's moral, say it again? Moral imagination. Moral imagination. Okay. Mm-hmm. So your take is on the imagination from a moral perspective. Tell us, talk about your book. I titled it that because I tend to see that the best, most effective political policy also yeah. tends to be the most moral from like a human morality type of Uh sense. And I think this plugs into any religion or spiritual tradition one might follow. The imagination part is to say that leaders who do make these decisions, it can be immoral to not have a strong imagination and use one's creativity to make things as good as possible for the people that they Uh govern. Mm -hmm. So Mm. uh, when are you running for office? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe right after this book is done. We'll after see. the book, that's what I thought. <laughs> okay, so so um, you, how is it structured? In the sense, is there a, a an offer for a better future? Um, you know, the imagination part. Do you offer another solution or another picture, another you know way things could. Um, could work in future? Do you offer a policy, an alternative policy? Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to offer better options of policies and ways to conceive of the issues that are swirling uh-huh. around. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. Oh, and thanks. how long is this going on? How how long have you been in your mother's house at the coffee tables in Pasadena? <laughs> how long has it been? <laughs> I think I officially started last December, so the very end of 2021. And I was only writing this once a week, if that, because I had Mm -hmm. all these writing clients. I didn't start in earnest full-time until around June, a couple months ago. So it's recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's really recent. So Mm -hmm. this is book number one, right? Do you have a a deadline? Do you you want to finish it by the end of the year? I want to finish it by the end of the year, absolutely. All right. And you have a publisher in mind? Uh, I have agents who I know deal with exactly the topic that I'm working on. And then probably before the next week, I can start pitching them. All right. Well, this sounds fun. It sounds really, really good. Um, Thank you. So so there's um, a saying in Italian, um, 
you have an idea in in a drawer. You keep a secret idea or a dream in a drawer. Do you, what do you have one in that drawer for the future that you're hiding? For the future, for the yeah. I'm very open to running for office. I think all right. I the, knew that was coming up. How how did I know that? <laughs> yeah, you could probably sense that. But I don't want the book to be sort of this is a manifesto of Brenchiata, even though it Not kind of book. is. I would much rather that readers, a lot of readers absorb these ideas and sort yeah. of change the way they think about these mm -hmm. issues. And then the world becomes a slightly better place because uh -huh. my book was read. I would much rather have that be the end goal. I'm not what a, office I'm not... are we talking about? Run Say for again, office. I'm sorry. What office are we talking about? You said run for office. Oh, I mean, uh, the, the sky's the top. Limit? Sky could be the limit. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> the the House of Representatives okay. feels like like a fun thing Something to try for, for. Mm -hmm. and representing a few hundred thousand people, and that's like it's right. very attractive to me. A very attractive okay. process. So now we're going to shift a little bit. This will be my last couple of questions for you. Um, all of what you're saying um, does give me, you know, because I said I, I may have said, what is the what made you change? What made you leave that job? What you know. So there obviously was a reckoning or an awakening or something that, you know, came up and started making you say, hey, there's something wrong here. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, and typically when I speak to people on this um, podcast, it always coincides with a spiritual awakening of some sort. Uh, somebody has a near-death experience. They see your grand, their grandfather at the end of their bed or something. Is Did that happen to you? In a way, it did. Mm. You've got great instincts for these things. Yeah. <laughs> I've been around a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. So I was... Go ahead. Yeah, I was living in New York City from yeah. 2017 until 2020. Okay. Where and in New York City, if I might ask? I was in manhattan in the east uh, village okay yeah. alphabet city if uh, people know lay of the land well <laughs> I know. so i was working at a company a mm -hmm. public relations company yeah. that did really great work they had a great vision but it didn't feel as though they handled the shutdowns during the pandemic very uh -huh. well mm -hmm. um, we were all working way more than we had before mm -hmm. i could see my coworkers kind of losing their minds with bags under their yeah. eyes working until midnight and through this sort of arduous situation, mm -hmm. I noticed that my I had a level of anxiety I'd never oh, felt before and wasn't really familiar with. I didn't mm. know a lot about it and thus started an education on all of those topics. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up quitting the job and moving back home to Los Angeles. And throughout all of last year, um, I did I was on my own journey doing the work. As uh, people would say. When you say doing the work, can you be more specific if you yeah, don't mind? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So trying to connect more with my own inner self through mm -hmm. things that people recognize like mindfulness, mm -hmm. uh, yoga, okay. going oh, okay. through my day slowly and methodically ah, focusing okay. on what I'm doing, Being but also conscious. doing things like, mm -hmm. yes, like doing things like talk therapy, um, mm -hmm. doing things like yoga watching documentaries on different spiritual traditions, buying mm -hmm. books on these types of topics. I wanted to know as much as possible. 
Well, this obviously is necessary for a book on political philosophy, no? I would say you're right. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, so this is the first book, all right? Mm -hmm. And I know you have an eye to the future. What do you Mm -hmm. think or imagine could be another upcoming work? Do you have that? Another upcoming work. Yeah. In your closet somewhere? (laughs) uh, Not tangibly in my closet, but I can put it there. I love (laughs) fiction. And I think fiction in the form of poems, which you are very fluid Mm -hmm. in, uh, short Mm -hmm. stories and novels, I think they have a power to placate and empower the human psyche that nonfiction doesn't have. Whenever I take a fiction writing class, I'm so viscerally inspired by the things that we're reading. But fiction is wide ranging. Do you have uh, uh, something more? A thriller or something, you know, what do you have? You're talking about poetry, but that doesn't convince me. (laughs) It's it's only superficial. Come on, let's get to the meat. (laughs) You're right. I love the idea of writing a novel, a traditional novel, where you're putting yourself into the shoes of a normal person going through their day. But as the story unfolds, it feels like a profound recitation on the human condition where the reader Uh can empathize with the protagonist and sort of embody a different a different Mm -hmm. existence and therefore and by in that way in that way sort of expanding one's horizons and the way they view other people and the world around them well i don't want to say it sounds like a fantasy novel but (laughs) you still gotta (laughs) think about that (laughs) yeah you're right yeah a lot of things well you could you have so many experiences to to you know get your information from that you can although you know writing uh, a non-fiction no matter how narrative it could be is completely different from writing fiction and um but you know like you said the sky's the limit who knows <laughs> brent thank you so much for taking your time it was such a joy to talk to you my An gosh interesting thank you for having me claudia You're running a fantastic thing here. I hope you keep it up. It's really, really great. (laughs) Thank you. I hope to cross paths with you again. Bye-bye. I hope so, too. Bye, Claudia.